Friends, that was the nigun of uh, of return again, because we are approaching we are approaching Elul, the month preceding the high holidays, and return again, return to who you are, return return to what you are, born and reborn again. That we don't need to become new people is the message of Teshuvah. We need to return to our deeper good essence that's already there, that's already there. Um, so I give us all the bracha, and I hope you'll give it back to me, that we continue to chip away the layers that have been added onto us from social conformity and traumas and just life that distract us from our true, our true essence. So if you're new to this program, we're in session five out of 39 on the malachot, right? The idea here is that God, so to speak, created the world with 39 malachot, right? Um, uh, and thus, the tabernacle was built with 39 processes, and thus, there are 39 dimensions of Shabbat, traditionally things that people would avoid doing on Shabbat, um, but we're approaching this more, more broadly and philosophically from a justice perspective, from an ethical perspective around um, how we think about, how we think about um, rejuvening ourselves, ourselves, a process of renewal to bring our best, our best game into the world. So again, if you're new, I'm going to for about 15 minutes, um, and then we're going to open up the floor for conversations and thoughts and questions. So this is dash, dash. Okay, dash, threshing, threshing. You might not know a lot of threshing if you don't have an agricultural background, but as part of the agricultural experience, the act of dash or threshing involves loosening grain kernels from their stalks. The process of removing the edible grain from the chaff is the next step in the process after reaping. So threshing is very labor intensive when it's done by hand. By, um, so some ancient farmers and even some of the contemporary ones would beat the grain using a flail on a, on a threshing floor, 
right? So see the, see the fellow on the right smashing it and the fellow on the left using an instrument if he was fortunate to have one. Some would have their, their donkeys or their oxen walk in circles on the grain on a hard surface. In modern times, some farmers would put grain on the road so that vehicles could drive over them. Okay, so this malacha, the malacha of dash, is ultimately concerned with extracting edible food from inedible objects. So traditionally, the malacha gets extended in interesting ways, like milking cows, um, because you're removing something edible from something inedible. I mean, I guess maybe there are people who want to eat cow udders. Uh, you know, someone's going to tell me it's a delicacy of, of some village in China or something, uh, which is not an anti-Chinese statement. Um, it's wonderful if they want to eat cow udders. I mean, um, it's definitely not an anti-Chinese statement. Uh, and, even, and it also gets extended to a nursing mother expressing milk to be saved for later use. So traditionally, if you're in a, a traditional Shabbat home, um, a woman, of course, can nurse her baby. A woman can even um, uh, express milk to re remove milk from her breast, but she can't um, um, pump. She can't um, express milk to be saved for after Shabbat, okay, is one of the extensions there. Because, again, the assumption is the human breast, the woman's breast is inedible. Of course, there are carnivores out there or dinosaurs <laughs> or other beasts that want to uh, eat, eat women and men. Um, but in general, we think of uh, women and women's breasts as inedible. But the milk that comes out is, in fact, edible. Actually, it's interesting. Uh, breast milk is not dairy. Uh, in terms of meat and dairy, it's parov. It's not, uh, it's not uh, dairy. The, the halakha distinguishes between removing a banana or an orange from a peel, which are snug tight, and removing peas from an inedible pod, which are not snug and which are normally removed well before eating. So a, a derivative of dash um, is schita, squeezing, such as wringing out a wet towel or squeezing a lemon into a cup of tea. Okay. Um, so that's, that's the traditional dimension. So the act of threshing is important in context beyond the halachic dimension on Shabbat, of course. For example, a quandary emerged that pitting a halachic imperative relating to the need to support community leaders against another having to do with animal welfare. The laws of truma, which require that portions of the harvest of Israelites and Levites be given to the priests, to the kohanim forbade an animal working on the threshing floor from eating the grain at its feet. Yet at the same time, muzzling an animal engaged in threshing is biblically prohibited. That's in one of the classical biblical animal welfare principles. You cannot muzzle your animal uh, because that's suffering in not being able to eat while working, presumably in recognition of this deep discomfort that an animal engaged in hard work would feel if it was muzzled with food just below its mouth. It would be a classical case of torture. The sages developed a creative solution around this problem, suggesting that the owners muzzle their animals with a feed bag containing grain similar to that being threshed so the animals would not feel frustrated while at their labors. So that's the animal wouldn't eat that, that prohibited food. Well, at the same time, they wouldn't have a classical muzzle. Um, they could um, have this feed bag. So too, when slaves were freed, the Bible instructs that they be supplied from the threshing floor. Here we're talking about slave reparations. The Bible, the Torah, is in favor of slave reparations. It says here over in Deuteronomy, Devarim, if a, if a fellow Hebrew, a man or woman, is sold to you, he or she should, shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year, 
you shall set him or her free. Okay, here, actually, here we're dealing with the Evid, Ivri, the Hebrew um, servant. When you set him or her free, basically, I, you know, I would actually, I know this will be controversial, I would argue rather than um, there being debtor's prison, of which is, we mostly don't have today, aside from some rare cases, but any form of debtor prison throughout history, that one should work off their debts. Um, rather, one should work off debts rather than certain white collar crimes being imprisoned. But I op- I'll, I'll save that, for that conversation for later. When, back to Deuteronomy. When you set him or her free, do not let her or him go empty handed. Furnish him or her out of the flock from the threshing floor and the vat with which God has blessed you. Bear in mind that you were slaves in the land of Egypt and God you redeemed you. Therefore, I enjoin this commandment upon you today. Okay? So it's interesting, this idea that when you free a slave, they don't leave empty-handed, um, that this biblical servant will, should, be, should be liberated with, um, um, with some supplies. And, and that should come directly from the threshing floor. I don't know why it needs to mention that, but maybe you'll have some ideas. Okay, continuing here, we're, um, now we're in Deuteronomy 15. The previous one was Deuteronomy 25. But should he say to you, I do not want to leave you, for he loves your household and is happy with you. He doesn't want his freedom. Um, you shall take an all and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall become your slave in perpetuity. Do the same with your female slave. When you do set him free, do not feel aggrieved, for in the six years he has given you double the service of a hired slave. Moreover, your God will bless you in all you do. You know, it's interesting. In, my, in all my times in Ukraine, I would ask Jews who were alive during, you know, communism, which you didn't have to be very old, <laughs> um, you know, how's it going? Do you love your freedom? You know, it's kind of an interesting question to ask, but do you love your freedom? I mean, you were alive during pogroms. You were arrived, you may have even been arrived during early revolutions. You were, you know, you lived during, you know, communist Russia, um, Soviet Union um, afterwards. And, um, and how's your freedom? They say, actually, um, I prefer to not be free, but to get fish every day. You know, and that's an interesting dilemma. Um, you know, do people want their economic needs, needs met? Uh, and that stability, or do they want their freedom? And a lot of folks, even the Jews I was talking to, the elderly Jews said, look, freedom's a little overrated. I'd rather just have steady fish from the communist government. It's kind of like the Israelites who left um, Egypt and said, let's go back. They gave us fish. They gave us fish. Uh, Freedom. What is this? Living in the desert for 40 years? What the hell kind of life is this? Excuse my language. Well, you know, what kind of language is this? Uh, what, what kind of life is this living in the desert? Where is it? We want food. I don't want freedom. I'd rather be a slave in Egypt and them feed me every day. Right, so that's an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting thing. I mean, uh, you know, as a as a uh, you know, first world problem might be you know the highest levels of liberty. Don't tell me to wear a mask. Don't tell me what to do. I want every liberty I can imagine. Right, but on a lower level, people want their needs met. Um, it's not a lower level. On a more basic human rights level, um, you know, freedom might not be all it's always made out to be um, when people want their want their needs met. So now let's go forward. Okay, so that's the slave in regards to, the, the reason we talked about the slave is because the food that the servant is freed with is directly from the threshing floor. Now let's look at Chazal. The sages in the Talmud have a requirement on where you build a threshing floor. They say over here in the Mishnah of Bava Batra, a fixed threshing floor must be kept 50 cubits from a town. A man should not fix a threshing floor on his own estate unless there is a clear space all around of 50 cubits. He must keep it away from the plantation of his neighbor and his plowed fallow, 
a sufficient distance to prevent damage being caused. Now, it's pretty obvious what that's about, that so this, is, this is about damages. Bhava Batra is, the, is one of the Talmudic tractates about, that's about legal damages. But Rashi explains and makes clear the primary reason for the distance is to protect those not only passing by, but people in the fields. This can be a dangerous process of things flying all over the place, you know, things, things getting hit and, um, and popping out and can pop an eye or, or create other damages. Indeed, this is another lesson about how we think about our food sources. We must do the necessary work to feed ourselves and our families, but we can't hurt others in the process. Okay, there can be complicity uh, in regards to how we get our food sources. And if we think about today, the essential workers, the essential workers who are put at risk um, at, uh, in farms. We may want fresh fruit every day, or we not want, we may need fresh fruit, fresh vegetables every day to be healthy people. And yet, what are the costs involved towards other people? The damages that might be involved. Just like there needs to be a distance in regards to the threshing floor to the people, what is the distance that workers are provided from other workers and, uh, to, and to, to ensure their own safety. In fact, we need to put special precautions in place to protect workers, animals, the land, and society at large when it comes to our food. The threshing floor, interesting, I just found this a few days ago, also plays a role in other parts of the Torah. God, God, G-A-D, instructs David, David to build an altar on top of a threshing floor, and he does. If you want to look at this case, it's in the second book of Shmuel, the second book of Shmuley, the book of Samuel, chapter 24, verses 18 to 25. From this passage over there, where, they, where he builds an altar on top of a threshing floor, we see that the threshing floor is a space that specifically can be made sacred. Now, it's interesting why he does this. Um, and here I, I, I learned this from Rebbe Lisha over in uh, northern Israel. He says, a Middle, Eastern, a Middle Eastern outdoor threshing floor was typically on a hill with descent but not overly strong breezes. Someone who just unmuted themselves has an echo. Okay, it's gone. A, a Middle Eastern outdoor threshing floor was typically on a hill with descent, but not overly strong breezes for winnowing after threshing. And that space, of course, is paved flat up on the hill. Thus, David, King David, built an altar on a threshing floor means that rather than take over an existing hilltop, altar to a pagan god, David found an appropriate spot in a grain fertile area, fertile area in which to build an altar to engage divine worship, thanking God for providing the, the, the harvest bounty. Further, the fact that this was the threshing floor of Eugebusite, even as Aruna was reimbursed, means that no Israelite's land was confiscated, expropriated, or taken possession by the right of eminent domains. Revelisha suggests the reason why David makes a threshing floor into an altar has two reasons. Uh, one, so that he not take an existing altar to a pagan god and convert that into, into his, his altar. And secondly, to demonstrate that he did not need to confiscate someone else's land. There was not any land stealing here in regards to his, um, into his religious vision. Okay, now another place we see this is over by Ruth. Ruth orchestrated her key encounter with Boaz. If you look back at, at Sefer Ruth, the book, the book of Ruth, um, her, her key encounter with Boaz takes place at the threshing floor. That story, that story reminds us that choosing the right time, place, and manner to interact with another person helps us to relate to others with the dignity that their humanity requires. Historically, threshing floors were out of town, and the family normally slept on those floors. 
during the season of threshing and winnowing. Boaz being alone on the threshing floor indicates, one, that he had wealth to have this threshing floor, two, that he was single, and three, that he might be secluded enough to consider marital relations, having sex with, with Ruth, and to start a family. So actually, the threshing floor is an important part of that story and the context um, of, of what's about to happen with Boaz and Ruth. Now, on a mystical Jewish level, on a Kabbalistic level, the connection between threshing is most obvious. As we pointed out a session or two ago, as the Kabbalah teaches, the hidden sparks of goodness are trapped within evil shells, klipot, and our mitzvot can shatter the outer shells, threshing those shells, so to speak, and liberate and elevate those hidden sparks on the inside. So in fact, the whole Kabbalistic enterprise of tikkun olam is, is about threshing. It is about threshing the klipot, the shells, um, smashing them open to, on a cosmic level to liberate those sparks inside. Uh, I've never heard anyone say that, <laughs> um, but it seems so obvious when I looked at Dash. Okay, now let's move to my, my favorite part, uh, the moral level. On the moral level too, and this is, um, we've got just a few minutes left here, then we're going to open it up. On a moral level also, we want to free the good and the noble from the sort of entrapment that a kernel of grain experiences within the imprisonment of Jeff. But how do we do that when entrapment is all around us? In Michel Foucault's book, Madness and Civilization, I believe his first book, actually, he explores the history of how reason and madness have normally been contrasted. Madness is seen as the dark side of reason. But he challenges this binary, suggesting that madness, such as that seemingly exhibited by a prophet or a seer, offers a new form of insight and truth. In fact, people who come before their times, as Nietzsche says, um, people who come before their times are normally viewed as mad, or those who are moral prophets in their time become outliers in their community. Oh, someone's got to mute themselves. Who's talking over there? Okay. Um, people who become moral prophets in their own time, speaking truth to power, naming inconvenient truths, are oftentimes marginalized and deemed to be mad or crazy. But so, these people are marginalized along with others who are criminalized throughout history. He shows a historical pro progression in the societal approach to madness, showing that madness is still not validated, but at least is seen as something to cure rather than to criminalize. Later, Foucault goes even deeper into the history of torture and punishment at large. Most famously, he explores how Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon, um, that Bentham, who, who, uh, Bentham of a 17th century British philosopher who's considered the first proponent of utilitarianism, he imagined a world where the greatest pleasure led, led to, the, um, to the greatest good for society. His imagined prison model, the Panopticon, is a massive institution where everything is hyper-structured and everyone is observed. Um, in, in modernity, viewed as some form of, of progress, of industrialization. And yet, there's a new form of torture that emerges. He extends, Foucault extends this idea of discipline, discipline is a key word for him, to various other institutions beyond just the prison, where we turn subjects into objects. We turn subjects into objects. Um, now, Foucault suggests that power is spread throughout all practices, and there's, there is a race in society to accumulate power 
in order to modify other people's behaviors in all areas of society. Yet one might suggest that, as many did suggest, that he, he's not cynical, that basically we're doomed, human nature is doomed, society is doomed, it's just a race to power until we destroy each other. Um, because he does argue that power can be productive, as we know from social justice work, that power is not a bad word. Power, we want to accumulate power uh, through our community organizing uh, for, uh, to, um, to use that power for good. Such as, um, in Foucault's case, education. I mean, it's convenient that he works in, in education, but I think most of us would agree um, that there too, there's discipline involved in the educational systems, which can be uh, abused and misused. Um, and yet, in, in educational systems, um, um, uh, uh, power can also be a very productive, uh, be used very productively. Actually, it's interesting. As we moved from a more um, utilitarian perspective of punishment in America to a more deontological one, uh, and even further towards a system of just desserts, that the, the purpose of punishment was that people should get what they deserve, regardless of whether it was good for them, good for the taxpayer, good for the victim, um, you know, good for, on various levels, good for teshuva, uh, good for their potential to change and evolve. Um, so too, the educational system saw more suspensions, more exp expulsions. We, we took a more just desserts, a harsher, a harsher uh, approach to punishment in schools as we did in prisons as well. As scholars have shown that correlation and in other systems beyond those two. In any case, back to Foucault. Power is an inevitable dynamic of our lives. He wants to see us engage in the just, just distribution of power rather than falling into systems of dominance. There will, there will inevitably, he argues, be a power dynamic between lovers, yet we can think carefully about how to balance such dynamics out. He says there's not those with power and those without power. It's not like that. There's every, power is flowing between all relationships in all different ways throughout all institutions and all systems, these power dynamics, um, and everyone holds different types of power, different degrees of power. What we, what we cannot do is be blind or naive to the power dynamics around us. After all, such illusions, um, like all illusions, one might suggest, lead to greater suffering for all. We have to engage in processes of distinguishing the true from the untrue, the good from the evil. We have to differentiate food from the inedible, that which can nourish us from that which cannot nourish us. This is where our pluralism or relativism has its limits. There still need to be some binaries within our moral complex epistemological structures. There still needs to be limits and definitions and separations. We need to be able to separate the chaff from the wheat. Okay, last, last thought. Stepping back on Shabbat from the process of threshing and thus removing food from non-food helps us to focus on the gray areas in our lives but also helps us to maintain focus on the black and white areas in our lives. And so this is the thought I want to close us with and open it up for questions, uh, conversation, disagreements, is my argument, um, and this closing point at least, is that, that um, life is about ambiguities. It's about paradoxes. It's about conflicting truths. It's about pluralism and relativism. It's about skepticism. We don't know as much as we think we know. The more we know, the more we realize we don't know. And yet at the same time, um, I believe that there is also um, 
still a duty to maintain certain black and whites, certain moral absolutes, certain boundaries, certain separations. We can call that, in fact, that when we say Havdalah, Havdalah ending Shabbat is all about remembering those um, binaries. Shabbat is something different from the other six days. Being a Jew is something different than being a human. Doesn't mean being a Jew is better than being a human. Uh, Jews are humans. Um, it's something, it's a different experience. Um, so too, um, the Kodesh and Chol, the holy from the non-holy. Um, and can we still, without being fundamentalist, maintain um, such ideas as the good and the evil? And so dash, threshing, is about, is about learning to see some of those binaries, those good and evils, that which nourishes us, that which doesn't nourish us, some of the black and whites as they exist. Um, and yet there are all these gray areas with power, as Foucault lays out, and yet nonetheless, our, our, our work, um, our mandate, to foster, to foster liberation, freedom for people to actualize their potential. So, so friends, I'm going to pause there, and um, I'd love. Uh, I'm going to read the chat on the side, and I'm going to. Uh, you feel free to unmute yourself if you want to speak now. If someone is speaking, you're on mute still. Oh, are people able to unmute themselves? Shmuley. Yes, hello. Hi. Uh, just a history of thought footnote to your discussion. Uh, if, if you are correctly portraying Foucault's comments on Bentham, he doesn't know anything about Bentham. He's got He's two centuries off, uh, and the Bentham suggestion he was commenting on was actually intended to liberate people as opposed to the previous workhouse arrangement. Oh, good. Very good. Craig, thank you for that. So um, I would encourage folks to, who are interested in that topic to look back because that's exactly right. There's a few centuries between um, Bentham and Foucault, and Foucault is going in a different direction. Um, and one could very easily, as I think Craig is here, uh, suggest uh, that, um, that Bentham actually, uh, uh, Bentham systems led to uh, a great deal of progress during his, uh, his models led to progress. Actually, my point was Bentham wasn't a 17th century philosopher. He was a uh, very late 18th and 19th century philosopher. So if you call him a 17th century philosopher, and that's what Foucault did, he got it wrong. No, then, no, thank you, Craig. Then, then those dates, that date is my era. Uh, is my oh. error. But Foucault did definitely not make an error on Bentham's date. So that, that, that error is definitely my error. So thank you for that correction. Ben, so, so I'm going to correct uh, Bentham's error. Thank you for that. Okay, someone else. Molly, it's Mona Fishbane. Shalom, shalom. Shalom, shalom. Um, this is wonderful teaching. I really, I really appreciate it. And I'm thinking about um, how we define emotions as good or bad or experiences as positive or negative. Um, one of my favorite books is by, uh, uh, I think her name is, um, I'll, I'll block her name, but her, the book is called Healing Through the Dark Emotions, The Wisdom of Grief, Fear, and Despair. Miriam Greenspan is the author. And she talks about how um, experiences that feel traumatic or 
totally negative to us, like the loss of a child or serious illness or about Job, right, um, can also teach us um, not that we want these experiences, but there's something to learn from them, which I think is related to what you're teaching. Um, I think the notion of we talk about both parts of your heart, the Yetzir Tov and Yetzir Ra, that we need to find a way to integrate and bring together and learn from the negative. Um, and, and I think um, Rumi has a beautiful poem called, I think it's um, uh, The Guest or something like that, but it's about welcoming all the, all the emotions, all the experiences that come to your door, that all of them have something to teach you. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out. I love that. Um, I love that, you know, and, and building off, by the way, if you didn't catch my um, interview with Dr. Fishbane just last week on her new exciting book on um, neuroscience and couples therapy and, and relationships, it's really, really wonderful. And I love this point you just made. And, and, and I would even suggest building off that. And, you know, in Pirkei Avot, famously, we say, um, we say, um, uh, who, is a, who is a wise person? Someone who can learn from every person. Um, and I think we can even say there's multiple people, if you will, within the self. There, um, you know, our past selves, our, our future selves, you know, our um, different dimensions of self. And, and there, rather than shaming our, neg- our, our negative uh, emotions um, and feeling bad about feeling bad, um, we, can learn fr- um, we can learn from all dimensions of ourselves. Behold of Avcha, as you said so beautifully, uh, and learn from negative emotions. And I think that's so powerful and that, that would be a part of wisdom and of, of healing. So, so thank you for that. I love that. Someone else. If I can make a comment that you made about um, the good from the bad in food production, um, Mm -hmm. which is something, I mean, I don't eat meat, but for those who do, I can't understand how any food can be labeled as kosher if the workers Mm -hmm. are treated badly, if the (laughs) animals are treated in a cruel way. you know, I, I think that that's just even morally, how can one eat meat if one would eat meat without, you know, thinking how bad it is to eat meat. But if you say, well, fine, I want to have cruelty-free meat, mm-hmm. one, one needs to have a situation in which both the workers and the animals are treated properly. And, and if we're going to divide the good from the bad, then definitely... Mm-hmm. Kashrut um, should be part of that. That's Lauren, thank you for that. And you're getting me in trouble here because you're you're raising an issue which I which is one of my top uh, top issues of priority uh, food systems. Um, and I could talk about it for hours, so I'm going to have to really limit my, my response to two minutes. But um, you're exactly right. And in the spirit and in the spirit of learning about dash of of having some distinguishing, the rabbis were about um, distinguishing. And so too, they distinguish kosher from yosher. Uh, as Rabbi uh, Breuer famously said, we want glat kosher and glat yosher, by which he meant on a, on a traditional level, something being produ- food being produced unethically does not affect in any way its kosher status. Now that might be troubling, um, and, and to me it is troubling, but they viewed it as two different realms they said, okay, the kosher is the ritual dimension and the yosher is the ethical dimension. So if someone mistreated their animal, um, but the animal is still kosher, 
Um, it doesn't, it means that it's still kosher, but it's not fit for consumption. Now that's interesting. In, in, the, in the great boycott of the 1960s, when the rabbis joined Cesar Chavez, I was just talking about this an hour ago, um, joined Cesar Chavez in the 1960s, and the rabbis said in America in the 60s, it is forbidden to buy grapes right now because of the oppression of farm workers. And the Boston Baitin, the Boston Baitin made an issue. They, they put out a chuva, they put out a ruling saying you cannot buy grapes right now. Um, because of the mistreatment of these workers. They didn't say the grapes aren't kosher. Grapes are always kosher. They said it's not fitting for consumption. It's forbidden to buy it. And so you're right. If we mistreat the land, you think we'd say not kosher, mistreat the animal, mistreat the worker. But in fact, they had it as a separate realm. And this is one of the, one of the great opportunities for social justice work today from a Jewish perspective, is to think about our food sources, whatever one's interest is, if it's animal rights, if it's the environment, if it's essential workers who are pay, pay, paid you know, dirt wages out in, out in the fields, if it's human health, um, if it's organic, you know, if it's, if it's um, slave labor, you think of the Uyghur genocide over in China right now. We're going to do a session on that next week if you didn't see that yet. Um, and if it's blood diamonds, diamonds that are produced through slave labor, you know, or non-fair trade chocolate. I mean, all these various issues. And one of the problems is transparency, um, that we don't know enough about a lot of things. On a lot of things, we do. And sometimes we make hard choices. I still buy Apple products, even though I know slave labor is involved in Apple products. You know, I don't think I buy Nike, but maybe I have some Nike stuff, knowing that Nike is one of the companies using concentration camps in China. And so it's very complicated and very difficult. And we're, we have some moral complicity. I'm doing a different session in two weeks on moral complicity in regards to economic uh, uh, you know, economic uh, decisions and how we think about our teshuva, our repentance around those. But anyways, and Lauren, thank you for raising that because you're right. It's, it, is, um, it, it is a huge issue and a huge opportunity. Okay, someone else. Uh, Neil Kamis. Shalom, shalom. Oh. Hi. Hi. Um, I, I just wanted to uh, bounce off of that and say that it not only has to do with what we consume in terms of food, but the way in which we interact with the planet. Um, that, you know, there are certain things that we should consume and certain things that we shouldn't consume. Mm -hmm. You know, like maybe we shouldn't be drilling for oil three miles below, the, you know, uh, below the ocean. Um, you know, that, that we are, um, uh, you know, that kashrut should teach us, you know, acceptable and non-acceptable as well as, you know, what, 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 we can what we should absorb and what we, you know, shouldn't absorb, you know, just because human beings can figure out a way to absorb everything doesn't mean that we should. Uh, amazing. Thank you, Rabbi, for that. And, and, and I, think, I think that's exactly right, that, um, you know, to break it down, I think there's a most traditional segment of the Jewish community, which is very interested in the ritual kosher, not at all the ethics. There's those who are trying to hold both. And then there's those who are redefining kashrut um, in ways that are purely ethical. Um, you know, Reb Zalman had, had, did a lot of work on that. Reb Zalman, Shakhtar Shalomi on eco, on eco kosher. And as Rabbi Neil, Neil's sharing here, also to think even beyond food, that kosher is a way to relate to consumption and our responsibility to sustainability and to the planet. And um, I, it is really hard to imagine any issue right now that is as important as the climate change issue. Um, I confess that it's not the issue that jazzes me. It's not the issue that I feel, I feel most jazzed, and jazz is the wrong word. I feel most agitated by issues of human oppression that are direct. A person who is 
a child who is who is abused, a woman in a domestic abusive uh, relationship, you know, a person who is you know imprisoned unfairly, war, you know, war, genocide, these types of things. But undeniably, even though it it might seem less direct, um, the climate change issue is the most urgent issue of all because everything relies upon such an issue. And thankfully, the Torah has a lot to say about it, and I think it has a good intersection on this point as well. Um, and this is not, as we know just about us rethinking our light bulbs and cars, not just about factory farming. Um, it is about changing the entirety of the systems. And we have a lot of power. As American Jews in 2020, we have a lot of power on the, on the global situation in regards to this, America being um, in the situation it is around pollution. So thank you for that, Rabbi. Um, Rabbi? Yes, please. Hi, Eileen. Hi. It seems to me that as Jews, we can see a moral imperative. So how do we get the rest of the world to also see this as a moral imperative? Oh. Not only in regard to climate change, but also in regard to proper treatment, humane treatment of our animals and uh -huh. of our people. Great. Okay. I love that question. I love that question because it, Eileen, it raises the issue of cultural relativism. When do we say another culture should do what they want because they're a distinct culture? And when do we say there's limits to moral relativism and we want to actually um, either legislatively or persuasively uh, intervene on how another culture operates. This is a huge question. And ground zero of that question has been the issue of female genital cutting. Now, if you look back at female genital mutilation, as it used to be called, um, women from Texas, white women from Texas in the 70s, arrived in Africa with signs. And they're like, stop your barbaric practices, female genital mutilation. This is barbaric, what you're doing to little girls. Stop. And the, and the, the, the folks over there in the villages were like, who are you? Like, from Texas telling us what we should do? Like, this is our ancient tribal practice for centuries. Like, how you're so enlightened, you're going to come and tell us, like, how we should do this? So that didn't work so well. And then in, in, the, in, the, in the further decades, um, uh, not, more sophisticated nonprofits arrived and said, you know what, we can't preach to this culture. Let's empower the local women to have conversations about public health. And let's empower those women to think about this, about the fact that 25% or sometimes more, sometimes up to 50% of little girls die from female genital cutting um, through infections or, or, or errors and, or other factors. And so they got the women together to talk and they said, how do you feel about this? Like, like do you believe so much in this practice? This is worth it. Are you afraid? I said, actually, we've never had a space to talk about this really. And yeah, this is not what we want to be doing. And Village by village, there has been movements to wipe out female genital cutting on a grassroots level over the last decades um, on, on a phenomenal way, in a way that's not cultural imperialism, where some outside group is merely preaching what's right, but um, on, the, on, on, on the grassroots level, people are being powered to have conversations and create change. So too, um, you know, like, um, like most issues, we want to challenge ourselves before challenging others. How am I myself? you know, uh, operating with my consumer choices, with my environmental practices. But then going beyond, um, I think when we look at, at other conflicts in other parts of the world, such as on this issue, we want to think about, um, you know, interfaith conversation building. We want to think about grassroots empowerment, um, especially where there's not full education or awareness. Um, and um, 
and we want to, uh, you know, form a collaborative, respectful process to create change. Of course, other times we want to use a strong arm. How do we stop human rights abuses in China? Um, you know that, that you know there's an educational process, but there's also um, there's also leveraging power to create change around um, around you know horrific things that happen. So thank you for that, Eileen. Someone else. Um, um, Rabbi Shmuley, I, I wanted to just um, um, talk a little bit about what you said about how um, you know climate change is my issue. So I think yes, about it this is. a lot. Yes. Um, and one of the things that I feel like somehow this COVID experience has really brought forward in a way that um, feels, even though it's something I intellectually thought about a lot, it's uh, much more um, in my heart now, which is that the, the poorest and the least empowered and the least healthy mm -hmm. are going to be affected most mm -hmm. profoundly by things that happen. Right. Um, certainly you see it with COVID, but in climate change, mm -hmm. The refugees, the the you know the people who live in situations where their their villages or their islands are being submerged, their cultures, their um, crops are being lost. The the wealthy are always going to be the first to get what they need at the expense of the poor, and so um, that makes climate change really um, the most profound social justice issue, not, uh, not just environmental or um, mm -hmm. I love my trees, although I do, um, and I think in, in this climate, COVID time, the nature has been uh, such a solace that hopefully lots more of us recognize that we need to be outdoors more than we are, but that um, the loss of crops and structures and infrastructure and the chaos that we are not very far away from. I think we felt very insulated from, from system, systems falling apart. But I think if we've seen anything in this COVID thing, systems mm -hmm. are not very um, stable and, and leadership can change at any point in time and we can't count on stable leadership. The vulnerable of the poor um, um, is, is, and is just um, so profoundly visible, I think, and mm -hmm. climate change is going yeah. to always just make so many more poor people and, and um, um, not just poor in, in um, economics, but um, um, just people at risk um, yeah. for more. Thank you, Nona. That's so well said. And I think you're right. That's why we oftentimes talk more and more these days about climate justice or environmental justice uh, in regards to uh, how it's inter interconnected with poverty. And there will, there, there will always be those who um, simply don't care from an altruistic level. They say, you know what, maybe I'm old enough that I won't be alive when things get really bad, or maybe I'm wealthy enough that I can buy my way out of this. Um, but I think you're right that the pandemic, if, if anything, has shown us that um, that it's not mere altruism, it's also self-interest, um, that we are more interconnected than we could have ever imagined on a planet in terms of public health um, and in terms of economic stability and the like. And so um, uh, it's not merely altruism for those who are poor, although that's certainly very present, uh, but also realizing um, that we're all caught up in this together. So maybe we could, I don't know how we got fully on the environmental track. That was, that was fascinating, but it'd be great to transition back to Dash and some of the other themes that we raised if someone else wants to share now. Uh, hi, Rabbi, this is Eric. Um, hello, hello. Um, thank you very much. Uh, you, you. you brought up a, a point early on about the concept about uh, the slave uh, 
didn't, who felt like didn't want to be a slave, or who didn't want to still be a slave, but more comfortable, and there was a rule about six years. It kind of spoke to a little bit of the theme of the transition of, of a mindset from one concept, from one transition to another. That took six years, that was a rule. You had the, uh, the Hebrews in the desert, it took a whole generation to be mm-hmm. for that transition. Um, if it moves too fast, there could be consequences. Um, mm-hmm. A very horrible example to give, and forgive me for anyone, if this is very sensitive, it would be if, right after the Holocaust, if you gave food too much to the survivors too quickly, so many perish, a result of the transition too quickly of eating too much and trying to, instead of the, the easy adjustment back into the physical um, changes. So my question is, where, I, I fail to understand where the, where in, in, in commentary and in Torah it talks about where the, the right transition is, is suffice in terms of uh, the, the process of food, kosher, uh, lifestyle. It doesn't seem like there's a one, one size fits all kind of rule to, in terms of the transition. Can, can you kind of share more okay. about those? I, I, I caught most of it except for the final question. What, what, what do you mean in transition in, in, in regards to food? Um, oh, like whether it's like from, from, from different levels of uh, keeping of kashrut, from from the just keeping kosher to to the ethical component of it, uh, to keep it's not just kosher, but you know, it's, but also the uh, ethical component. I'm just wondering, is there? I'm I'm failing to understand where. Can you explain more about the the transition of the just that transition, like what the Torah and the commentary say about transitioning, like from kosher into other examples of that? Because you gave examples I thought were very fascinating. I, I wonder if you could share more about that. Okay, great. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, I think you're exactly right that in this case of the, of the, um, of the servant in the biblical model, um, which, by the way, just to highlight some of the progress there, we might think of it being quite – oh, someone's not on mute who's talking. There you go. Um, that we might th- um, think of it being very problematic that there are uh, slaves in the Torah – um, uh, but it would have been, um, totally radical for the Torah to eradicate slavery at that time period. Um, in fact, it only 170 years ago in this country, did we eradicate slavery? So actually, it, actually it shows that it, it, it took even longer than that. I mean, formally we eradicated, but slavery existed well beyond 1850s as well, um, in America, even though it was, it was, it was illegal, um, but the Torah still has slavery, obviously, like every society at such a time period. And the progress, the Code of Hammurabi says, if you, if you kill your slave, you strike and kill your slave, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's a monetary crime. Uh, you, you, um, you, you have to pay money. Um, but if you, if the Torah says, if you, if you strike and kill your slave, it's a capital crime. This is a human being. So um, th- there were a number of transitions that made, uh, made it such that that the servant was um, maintained in their in their dignity while maintaining the the ancient economic problematic uh, you know economic structure as it existed in power dynamics, and yet you're right here that the transition um, with food stuff is also similar to the problem of prisons today. The prison reentry problem is one of the big, biggest uh, crises. That the recidivism rate is so high that those who come out of prison are very likely to go back partially because of the failed prison experience, partially because of their own uh, commitments, 
um, but partially because of a failed reentry process. They can't get a job. They can't, uh, you know, reignite their relationships that they had that were kind of broken and various other things. Sometimes they, jobs they can't even get with a felony. And so there is a transition back into society. Like you said, how do we transition from Holocaust into sovereignty? I mean, Holocaust ends in 45, and then we have sovereignty uh, in 48. And that's, that's really difficult. Or leaving Egypt you know, going to, to the promised land. There's, there's, a, there's a brief transition there. And so transitions are really complicated. Or you think about a divorce into a new marriage. Some people get divorced and they never get remarried. Some people get remarried 20 years later. Some people get married six months later. And so what is the transition period that happens in that space of healing and of growth? Um, um, and this is true in, in all of our life when we transition from one job to a next. Now, in terms of in terms of your specific food questions, um, it's, it's quite interesting that, um, that the ethical dimensions were kept quite distinct for so long. Kosher didn't talk about animals. It talked about sar balei chayim. It didn't talk about workers. It talked about oshek, the oppression of workers. Um, it didn't talk about the, the land in particular. It was, it was, it was tangential. And then um, a part of that uh, transition happens as as agricultural systems evolve and as we and as political systems evolve and control over our own land um, and, and opportunity evolves. And as Jews move more and more away from food production in many ways, the return to the land in Israel offers this new opportunity to think about Shemitah and think about other other food issues. Uh, over here, we oftentimes think of the workers in fields as being Mexicans, Mexican laborers, or folks from Central America. In, in Israel, you think about Arabs, Arabs being um, you know, field workers or, or in the back rooms of restaurants. And, and the different relationships Jews have to Mexicans in America is very different than Israelis Jews have to um, Israeli Arabs or to Palestinians. Um, and yet the complexities um, are still there. And so, um, and so I think that what Kashrut was ultimately about was a system of, of spirituality, um, about a consciousness of what we consume, that we elevate our spiritual and moral consciousness before we eat something. Going back to, you know, Viktor Frankl, as, as uh, and Mona, you said recently, and I, I think I shared recently also, that, um, you know, an animal operates by stimulus and response. But the, the, the human moment of freedom is that moment between stimulus and response where we make a choice. We make a choice that we don't just eat whatever tastes good or whatever, you know, is in the price range of what we want, but we make a choice on what to eat. And part of that choice is, is, is built into it a spiritual and moral reflection um, around what is, what is good for the world, what is good for me. Um, and so I think Kashrut was ultimately about that. And the Torah has its own vehicle to think about what's most spiritually um, illuminating. And the rabbis have their view and it continues to progress. And I would say in 2020, we're in a new place to hold on to that traditional mechanism and also to allow to liberate it and allow it to progress to the next stage as well as we think about um, our greater control. Yitz Greenberg, part of his theology is about the, the um, divine uh, contraction from control and the human expansion of freedom. So, so in, in the beginning of the Torah, God's in control and humans are like babies, right? God's going to split the sea and take us out and all we have to do is kind of walk, right? But then God's going to remove God's presence as you get to the Purim story and the Megillah. God's name isn't even mentioned um, as, as, as uh, you know, in that, in that complex and in some ways problematic <laughs> story of the Megillah um, in regards to how freedom is exercised. But now all the more so in 2020, um, God's control is less seen. Hester Punim, it's more hidden 
uh, if you will, and human freedom is more amplified. And so today, kashrut is, um, requires more human responsibility. It's not just a parochial system of hetsher, is the right hetsher on there, but actually a more expansive question of consumption. And, how, and, and here's the challenge I want to give to everyone, and then, and then I'll move on um, for our last seven minutes here, is that um, the challenge I want to pose is that every um, Jewish institution should have an ethical food policy up to some degree. Um, we're not dictating what it should be around kosher, around other ethical concerns, but every uh, board or institution should engage in some process or a staff um, of saying, what will we um, say no to? Is there anything um, that we think crosses a line in terms of what our community uh, is going to buy and consume and offer? Um, and so some might do something as, as small, I don't want to minimize it, but something like um, fair trade gelt you know, Hanukkah, where this is going to be our stand. Someone else might say we're going to limit meat intake. Someone else might say we want unionized labor involved in this thing or that, you know. Someone else might say we're going to pay living wages to the workers within our synagogue, whatever the case is. So anyways, I want to bracket it there because this is a whole other topic. But thank you. Thank you, Eric, for that, 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 that great question. Someone else. So I hate to bring it down from these wonderful, important topics to something a little silly, but my son who watched your uh, initial remarks smoothly with me had a question that he wanted me to ask, which is he was struck by the idea that human milk is part of rather than dairy. And he was wondering, is that because um, there's something particular about the type of, of animals that humans drink non-human milk from cows and goats etc he was thinking what if we we're talking about something like wolf milk would that be considered dairy or or par what's the what's the thinking behind it is his question okay awesome i love that i love that good to see you brett thanks um and, and, and I'm, I'm so glad your son was in, involved too so that, that's awesome so yeah it's really interesting you know one of a famous um late 20th century argument was between Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein and Rabbi Huda Amital uh, around if you're stranded on a mountain with nothing to eat and you're starving um, and you can either eat the dead human corpse of the person you were traveling with um, or you can eat a pig you randomly find, which should you eat? And Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein says you eat the dead human corpse because the pig is prohibited on a, on a derisive level, on a biblical level, and the human is only rabbinically prohibited. The Torah doesn't say you can't eat humans, right? So he says, of course, you should follow the rabbinic prohibition instead of the Torah. Uh, you, you know, you break the rabbinic prohibition rather than the Torah prohibition. And um, Rav Amital, they were, they, of course, they were co-Rosh Hashivas. They were from very different worlds, but co-Rosh Hashivas, they, they led um, the Gush, the, Har, the Haratzion Yeshiva. And he says, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Kavod habriot, human dignity. Like, it would be a, just a terrible thing um, you know, for us to um, desensitize ourselves so much that we could eat human flesh. And so um, even though it, that it's a rabbinic level and the other's a, a, a biblical level, clearly someone should eat the pig rather than, um, rather than the human corpse. So, uh, so I'm thinking about that for the moment on rabbinic level of prohibition. And, you know, as, as you're right, the, I, the whole idea of cooking a kid in its mother's milk, of course, in its very straightforward language meant it was an animal welfare principle, right? That there, you can see the two cows and we're so sensitive to the mother, suffering of the mother that we don't think like that there should be a suffering of a mother and a, and, a, and a baby. And so we don't want to separate that. And then that got extended even further that, whoa, all of a sudden you can't 
mixed chicken with dairy? What does that have anything to do with it? Like chicken, the rabbis wanted to extend it. Um, and then what exactly is milk? Um, you know, is milk just cow milk? Um, what exactly is milk? And so, um, and how far does dairy extend itself? Um, and um, I, I would need a little more research to, uh, to share, and maybe I'll share it next session, to share the parameters of what is within the bounds of dairy and, and what is beyond the bounds of dairy. Um, but, um, the, but the fact that human, uh, uh, a mother's breast milk is uh, both kosher and, um, and part of non-dairy uh, is is uh, is is interesting. I wonder if there's a there's at least a a uh, rabbinic assumption, a gazera offense around drinking it with with meat products. Of course, you and Brett, Brett, you and I, and some others here don't you know don't don't have this problem at all, anyways. But um, uh, around because of, uh, of of the perception involved, um, uh, the perception of of what's being consumed. I don't think this is actually a practical problem that people are like mixing breast milk with their burgers or making cheese from breast milk or something. Um, um, nor does anyone have the concern of babies um, who are, you know, older, who are nursing and eating meat products at the same time. But anyways, suffice it to say, I don't know the exact answer as to the limits of dairy and, I, and I'm going to research that more. So thank you. Know, you're, you're, you're busy. Don't worry about it. I'm, I'm going to set my son to research it and, oh, and good. he'll report, he'll report oh. back. <laughs> oh, great. Good. Good. Please do. I'll, I'll, I'll be excited for that. Okay. Time for one more question or thought here. Okay, and yeah, Vicky, thank you for that around the institutional policies. I think that um, uh, sometimes we sidestep such issues. Um, um, we need to have uh, sexual harassment policies in place, all types of, uh, you know, racial justice policies in place, um, and, you know, and, and kashru policies and, and ethical food policies. And so friends, I leave us with this in our last minute here around dash, dash of threshing. Um, some of you might be very familiar with threshing from your own agricultural work. And some of you may have been very unfamiliar what a, th what a threshing process actually looks like and its complexities and, and evolutions throughout history. We looked at Kabbalistically, this idea of threshing as a form of tikkun olam. We looked at a little bit at Foucault um, in regards to madness and reason. Um, and in regards to power dynamics and how we think about freedom. And then we also looked about, even though the complexities and the gray areas of how power flows, that there still might be important separations, important binaries um, that are involved you know, here. And, um, and actually on that point in particular, I often talk with young Jews who struggle to hold on to both tribalism and universalism. I know a lot of traditional Jews who are very tribal and not universalistic. And I know a lot of liberal Jews who are very, um, uh, reject tribalism and very universalistic. And sometimes in the latter camp, there's a discomfort with Jewish particularism because um, being more Jewish, having a stronger Jewish identity means I'm less human or less universalistic. But in fact, I think a healthy perspective can hold both. Um, uh, two separate identities which can be integrated as well. And so Dash helps us to rem rem remember that um, there are black and whites, there are binaries, there's also gray areas and paradoxes. And as Dr. Fishman reminded us so nicely around the emotional life um, that we can learn from the negative. We don't just discard the negative, we can learn and, from the negative and integrate a fuller self around our full experiences. Friends, Malacha 6 next week. Can't wait. Have a great day. Thank you so much for joining.